Hello and welcome to the View from the Castle podcast, where we talk all things legal finance. I'm your host, Pip Murphy. The legal finance industry is interesting, diverse and forever changing. So here at The View from the Castle, we will talk all things legal finance. We hope to give you the insider's guide to legal finance and provide you with tips and tricks to accessing, obtaining and using legal finance. And we hope to shine a light on those individuals and companies operating in the legal finance industry to showcase their relevant experience and expertise. Each week, I will talk to people who have been there and done that. We will discover what is happening in the legal finance industry and what we can do to enhance and improve it together. Thank you for joining us today for the next Legal Finance and the View from the Castle podcast. Today we are joined by Felicity Cara George. Felicity is a senior associate in the Dispute Resolution Practice Group of Johnson, Winter and Slattery, one of Australia's leading independent law firms. Felicity is a specialist in class action claims and large-scale commercial litigation, acting for plaintiffs and defendants in some of Australia's most significant and high-stakes disputes. Felicity has strong relationships with a number of key national and international litigation funders and is well-versed in working with litigation funders and advising them on developments in the market, regulatory changes and common fund issues in the federal and state Supreme Courts. Felicity was named as Key Lawyer in Dispute Resolution in the Legal 500 as the only Senior Associate named for the firm. She was a finalist for Senior Associate of the Year at the Lawyers Weekly Women in Law Awards 2021 and named as a Loyally Litigation Rising Star for 2021. She also received an Excellence Award, Young Private Practice Lawyer of the Year at the Australasian Law Awards 2020 and was a finalist for the Litigation and Dispute Resolution category at the Lawyers Weekly 30 Under 30 Awards. Prior to joining Johnson, Winter and Slattery, Felicity completed an LLB with honours and a Bachelor of Commerce majoring in Economics and Finance at the University of Notre Dame, Australia. Felicity has kindly agreed to join us for a part one and part two discussion about the recent cases surrounding mining giant Arium. Today, for part one of our discussion, we're going to talk about the recent High Court case of Walton v ACN 00441833, formerly Arium Limited, in liquidation, which allowed an appeal from the Court of Appeal of the Supreme Court of New South Wales, overturning the New South Wales Court of Appeal's decision to set aside an examination summons. In part two of our discussion, which will be the subject of a separate podcast, we will discuss the recent class action claim against Arium involving the issue of a group costs order. So thank you so much for joining us today, Felicity. Before we get started, I do have a question for you to kick things off. And um, this is a question I ask um, all of my guests. If I met one of your closest friends on the street today, and I ask them to describe you to me or tell me what you're best known for amongst your mates, what would they tell me? 
Oh, that's an interesting question. I think they'd probably say I'm very approachable, like friendly, approachable, nice. <laughs> Is that what most other people have said, or do they have these special talents that I don't? don't <laughs> well, I think I think they're great um, characteristics. So, um, if that's what you think they'd say about you, then that's wonderful. Um, well, thank you for indulging me on on that question. Um, I think it's just a really good way to give the listeners some sort of insight into um, who you are and and what makes you tick on a personal level. Um, to, to get started on the podcast for today, I'm expecting there are a few nervous directors around following the Walton decision. Um, it would be great if you could give us the background and tell us about the facts of the case, the different stages um, and findings of the case, and, and ultimately, what the High Court held in February of this year. And I know you've got some thoughts on, you know, implications of this case for directors, for class actions, um, and the impact that this decision might have um, going forward. So if you could just give us your thoughts and insights and a bit of a background, that would be wonderful. Yeah, no, very happy to, Pip. Um, so I think this is one of those cases where you really do have to start um, with the context. So Arium was an ASX-listed um, steelworks company that collapsed in 2016, in April 2016. And I should caveat all of this that um, by saying that we actually did have um, an involvement in some separate litigation that was before the Supreme Court of New South Wales last year year in relation to that collapse and was was brought against individuals and we were acting for one of those individuals but our our involvement in that has now resolved and the case that we're talking about today is is quite separate to that in that it involves effectively a precursor to a shareholder class action that's now been filed so as i said in 2016 the arium corporation collapsed and in 2018 uh, solicitors for a number of shareholders wrote to ASIC saying that they would they were effectively requesting that they receive eligible applicant status under the Corporations Act. It's worth noting that the RM administrators had conducted public examinations in connection with the administration of the company and that when the shareholders sought this approval from ASIC to be to receive eligible applicant status under the external administration provisions of the Act, they were doing so after those examinations had concluded. But effectively, what the reason that they were seeking that, that special provision was to be able to conduct their own public examinations um, themselves. And importantly, in asking for that status to be granted to them, they said that they had some concerns about the financial information that was provided in relation to a capital raise that was conducted in 2014. And they implied that there was also a possibility of derivative action by the shareholders. ASIC granted them that eligible applicant status and they then subsequently went and filed um, some summons for examination with the Supreme Court of New South Wales seeking to examine directors under um, Section 596A of the Corpse Act, which they could, they could then do because they had received this status from ASIC. The um, examinees sought to set that summons aside and the company and KPMG intervened in that application to set the summons aside before the Supreme Court of New South Wales. 
so at first instance, Justice Black found that the summons was valid and that it was properly um, issued under that section because the applicant had received this eligible person status from ASIC, despite the fact that the purposes, and it was well known and it wasn't something that was, um, you know, that was um, caged, that there was a possibility that shareholders would take private action as a result of findings of those examinations. The examinees then appealed to the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal reversed the decision of Justice Black, um, effectively finding that while the summons had been issued, um, you know, consistent with the status that the applicants had, it amounted to an abuse of, of process, primarily because there wasn't a it was for an ancillary private benefit in that the shareholders who would then become litigants in a class action could use that process to mount their case. The applicants then appealed, so the shareholder group appealed to the High Court, and they were successful in having the Court of Appeal um, decision overturned on a 3-2 basis. And there was a lot of really interesting comments made by Justice Edelman and Justice Stewart in their joint judgment and then Justice Gagler in, um, in finding that you know, the appeal had been successful. One of the things that Edelman and, and Justice Stewart um, spoke about was the idea that the purpose of Section 596A and the examinable um, provisions for external administrations within the Corporations Act is really, has as, at its core an underlying public administration and compliance purpose. And what they said, and I think it's it's a quote that's worth that's worth noting here, they said that there's legitimate purposes under 596A, therefore include the enforcement of the Corporations Act, promotion of compliance with that Act and the protection of shareholders or creditors from corporate misconduct, and that an examination conducted for a purpose that included investigating the possible existence of misconduct on the part of a company's officers might be expected to serve the public interest in ways such as these. And then they said this, hence, regardless of whether whatever ultimate purpose a litigant might have, a summons is sought for a substantial purpose that includes the public purpose of enforcement of the of the Corporations Act, whether by ASIC or another eligible applicant, is not a summons sought for a purpose that's foreign to that section. So that sort of um, brings into focus this idea that this is ultimately a, a purpose, a, a provision within the Act that enables the enforcement of the law in respect to the examinable affairs of, of a corporation and its directors and is in that sense almost like a public dealing that um, these examinations go ahead. They also pointed to a couple of um, barriers that meant that this sort of, while, while this is almost an expansion of the ability to use this provision for purposes beyond what it's traditionally used for, which is external administrators, examining directors and officers of a company, there was a whole range of important controls that they referred to that meant that it wouldn't mount to an abusive process if that that sort of role was expanded to other people who had applied to ASIC. And one of the things that they talked about was that the court at the end of the day controls the examinations and could limit them so as to ensure that they were not conducted in a way that was oppressive or vexatious. And when you look at that, that meant that you could err on the side of saying that this wasn't an abusive process because there was mm -hmm. that that um, control in place. They also pointed to the fact, quite interestingly, that costs themselves were as a, a deterrent, which meant that, you know, you wouldn't have the whole world applying to get this eligible applicant status because you'd have to then take undertake the cost of actually conducting the examinations and that if they were conducted improperly, 
there could be a cost order against the people who were conducting the examinations if they were they were done unfairly. They then also said that while there is a possibility that you could conduct these examinations for the benefit of, of some people and not all, and including some shareholders and not all, that wasn't a reason to say that this was um, an illegitimate purpose. And, and what they said at paragraph 191 was the pursuit of a, of a claim for the benefit of some shareholders can be as legitimate as a claim for the benefit of all. In both cases, the recovery of money in respect of corporate misadventure serves the public interest mm. by necessarily including a purpose to enforce the law. Making such claims is a means of protecting shareholders and creditors and of ensuring compliance with the law. An examination made pursuant to that purpose is no, is no abusive process. So it's almost pointing to a broader idea that while there is this limited ancillary benefit that in this context, the public examinations are plainly going to be used for the benefit of the um, of what is a now on foot shareholder class action, that you can't look at it that narrowly and that there are broader um, interests at play, which I thought was quite interesting because it does go to a, an, an overarching purpose of, of public accountability. In his, um, in his separate judgment, Justice Gagler wrote a more confined opinion that really focused on the role of ASIC almost as a gate, but also ASIC serving a public function effectively and making sure that ASIC's powers in, in um, granting eligible applicant status to third parties is really one of its enforcement toolkits in um, testing the law. What he said was that, and this is at paragraph 121, in considering the appropriateness of the person being given standing to apply for an order under Section 596A or B, which is which is a different power, ASIC can be expected to heed the exoneration of the ASIC Act in that performing its functions and ex exercising its powers under the Corporations Act, ASIC must strive to maintain, facilitate and improve the performance of the financial system and the entities within that system in the interest of the commercial certainty, reducing business costs and efficiency and development of the economy and to promote the confident and informed participation of investors and consumers in the financial system. So again, it's sort of talking to this broader public purpose that examinations serve and keeping in mind that it, it might not necessarily be just a liquidator or a receiver um, who is conducting those examinations, but other stakeholders can can play a role in ensuring that companies are, are brought to account you know, in external examinations. So and I, think, I think, Felicity, that's really important. A really important point is that what you're saying there is that it's not a, a free for all or a, you know, floodgate kind of scenario. Yeah. You have to get, you have to get past that first hurdle or gate, as you referred to it, to be an eligible applicant authorised by ASIC. And then it has to be by the sounds of things, you know, in the public interest, and that might include encouraging a compliance with a law. The next gate, if you like, as you've said, is the court and the fact that the court has that overarching uh, supervision of these sorts of processes and making sure that it's not vexatious or an abusive process. So it just sounds to me like it's quite a controlled process, um, even though this is new law. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it, it sort of provides for a pathway for parties to not have to simply wait for the liquidator or the receiver to conduct examinations and then seek leave to separately examine. It gives them a way to sort of carve their own path. 
but there is those important gates and controls in mind. You still have to satisfy ASIC that there is a basis for it and that in being conferred that eligible applicant status that it will be used appropriately. And then, as you say, you've got the separate control mechanism of the court itself and the while um, anyone who's been in examinations will say that they're quite a very, they're quite a broad ambit in terms of what is considered examinable affairs of company, I think in the context of an examination such as this, where there is really a, a stakeholder that is not under a public duty like a liquidator is, the scope of the examination will be in that context. And I think that's where the law is developing to say, well, we're going to give you the ability to have this process because we think it's consistent with the public administration of the Corps Act to to, to have this function and to promote accountability. But that doesn't necessarily mean you can have you can go on a lark and find out things that are mm. well beyond the examinable affairs of the company. It still has to be connected to that purpose and, and not be you know oppressive or vexatious on the on the examinee. You mentioned also a bit earlier on KPMG was involved in this. Are you able to elaborate their involvement and their role was in this? process? Yeah, so um, one of the interesting things about the the claim that has been identified and, and has, has since been filed is it's not a claim that's made against the, the, the company is not the primary um, defendant. It's really officers and, and KP, uh, sorry, directors and KPMG. So KPMG similarly were in the firing line um, and, and they have been sort of a party at each step of the appeal process. And that's the, because they were the auditors? That's correct. And what the um, the High Court, it, it, it sort of only briefly deals with KPMG's role as being different to that of an examination by a director, but Justice um, Edelman and Stewart similarly said that they did not consider that KPMG as an examinee, that their um, role should be treated any differently in terms of of setting aside the examination that they've been issued with as an abusive process. They saw it as being consistent with that public administration aspect that they ought to be examined given that these applicants had received that eligible applicant status, which is interesting because you would think that that, that that's quite a separate role, but that's not where they've landed. In terms of implications for this judgment, I think we've accepted that it's not a floodgate or free-for-all process, but it is quite a significant shift or change. What do you see as the implications or developments falling out of this case? Well, I think that the the primary, there's, there's a number of implications, but one of the really interesting ones is that the judgment comes out at a time where um, shareholder class actions have had a bit of a rocky road over the past few years. There has been a few judgments that have finally provided some clarity but have probably exposed some of the risks in bringing such an action and in addition to that following you know the initial pandemic rules that establish a a fault threshold being made permanent there is this commentary within the market that it is now more difficult to overcome that knowledge hurdle when you're bringing a shareholder class action because you have to really be able to show at the outset in crafting crafting a statement of claim that there is a basis of, of fault on the part of the directors of the company in failing to um, to disclose what they ought to have disclosed. So this judgment in that context provides a pathway only for um, external administration companies but still, still a relevant one. Um, to be able to examine directors up front and and get them effectively get the knowledge that that one would need to be able to mount an action to that that new threshold. So it does 
swing the pendulum back towards the the side of the shareholder um, rather than the company in, in terms of that knowledge um, hurdle sort of starting to ratchet down again, which I think is quite interesting because put in within that context is, well, if you're going to take on that path, and Arium in particular was a very large corporate collapse, you're doing so in a public way um, and shareholder class actions are particularly competitive in respect of, um, of carriage motions. So I'm not sure how many of these we're going to see because one of the risks that I can imagine firms will have is in taking this step and taking this step with or without funding to go and examine people for the benefit of others who can then use that information that's that's come out might mean that it's it's more seldom used and that it's really one-off cases rather than every significant corporate collapse resulting in shareholder um, and, and plaintiff firms looking to to um, mount a shareholder class action coming forward and using this process because there is that competitive um, carriage motion risk that still is is within the market. Which, which is interesting. So I'm not sure how much we're going to see this, but it definitely does assist um, shareholders in mounting a case, a case um, and getting redress that they otherwise might not get through an external administration. And we haven't seen it yet, have we? I mean, I certainly haven't come across any other cases where it's been used. I mean, I know it was only February of this year, but um, but you're not aware of any other cases where this is currently being not not in a public corporation it might be that that external um eligible applicant status has been granted to stakeholders previously in relation to private um liquidations but not to one of this size that's that's now clarified that this is an illegitimate um mean for examining officers and 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 other people involved in the um in the administration of the company so than the collapse of the company, rather. And so any other implications that you can see coming out of this case? Um, I think one of the ones, and it's sort of something that you touched on in, in your last question, is we haven't really seen what the scope will look like. So, mm-hmm. And that's one thing that the court has sort of left a little bit up in the air in terms of saying that it's not an abuse because the court can control when it is and isn't an abuse, whether or not that context of what's an examinable affair of, of a company will be slightly different given that the people that are using this eligible applicant status won't already have that power um, conferred upon them from being appointed, you know, a liquidator who has a public duty to account for, you know, the administration of the company. So it might be that um, there is some challenges around the scope of the questioning and what can actually be be put to someone through this public examination process that that might develop a bit differently to what we're traditionally used to. I think as well, and the, and the big one is, and it's been commented on by a lot of a lot of firms, is that this really broadens a pathway beyond just shareholders who can apply to ASIC. And the the one that's really been touched upon in the commentary is environmental groups being able to um, go in and question directors of collapsed companies about you know, their record and all sorts of other issues coming into it. I think that the fact that there is ASIC as a gate um, and the cost of actually running an um, of public examinations might mean that that's less prevalent than what's been um, commented on, but it's definitely a risk and a trend that we're, we're likely to see. And then, of course, there's the 
issue of of directors and DNO insurance um, going through the roof. This is a this is another thing that will be a headache in boardrooms across the country because not only do you have the risk of of being examined become more prevalent, but successive examinations may also become a risk because the liquidator might, as, as has been the case here, might conclude their public examinations and then someone else comes in later and wants mm. to re-examine, um, which is always a risk just on a forensic basis in being repeatedly examined about, about the same issue. But that will no doubt also have some implications for insurance, for DNO insurance in particular. And to my point at the very beginning about there being a few nervous directors sitting around board tables. <laughs> That's right. And, I mean, it, it's one of those um, those risks with with external administrations is that there are other stakeholders within the room when you're conducting these public inquiries. The fact mm-hmm. that more people can conduct public inquiries is an expansion of that risk. So, and particularly since ASIC is the one who is um, providing the authority for um, shareholders to go and examine their directors, ASIC will be watching closely. Do you think that there is going to be a bit more of a focus on shareholder class actions against insolvent companies in order to access this particular power now? Um, I think a lot of that is economic based and to see where the next sort of next sort of um run of shareholder class actions are going to come from. Um, there are, from the more recent judgments that have come out in relation to shareholder class actions, there's some differences in terms of what is being pursued versus what was pursued previously. And there is still the the um, ultimate decider of some of these things, which is, is there insurance at the end of the day? Mm. Um, so the live question, I think, is really can a, um, can a shareholder... Um, examine a director about insurance policies that they took out as part of this process because that's the key question if you're um, mm-hmm. if you're mounting a class action um, against a company that's in administration you want to know that that's going to bear fruit is this a way of getting to the policy earlier and, and, and if that is the case then I think we will see a lot more actions if it's not well it's something that you might do for sort of and Arium was a very large corporate collapse for that size of company or where, you know, you're, you're quite certain that the assets of the company will, I'm sorry, the assets of the directors will respond. So I think it's possible, um, but it's a bit of a wait and see. And that's obviously a really important factor for litigation funders in terms of funding a class action is whether or not there's, you know, what does a recovery look like and whether or not there are insurance policies sitting in the background to be able to access that's right and it and it might be and that, that's why the scope of what you can actually ask during the examination is, is important and whether or not you can you will be permitted to do that on every occasion um and whether this sets that sort of precedent will, will be interesting to watch and that was to your point earlier about the fact that that will be determined by the particular judge involved or the particular court that you're actually accessing as to whether or not you can you can go to that that length in terms of your questioning yeah, that's right. And 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 I guess to that end as well, whether or not we see this starting to become a bit of a precursor trial, because I would expect that um, if the questioning is is going to be around the insurances that are available, the insurers might have something to say about that and um, will be seeking, no doubt, to intervene in those examinations to prevent that from being part of the examinable affairs. So 
you know, it's it is a um, a positive development in terms of giving giving a more certain pathway to shareholders in conducting these examinations. But what they can actually do with that power, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, well, it's I guess it's um, a feature of the class action landscape at the minute, isn't it? It's changing every day. There's new law being made all the time. Um, yeah, I th- I think so, and I think probably the sort of the last sort of insight to round out those sorts of trends is that what this is you know it wasn't um, hidden to anyone at every stage of of this um, litigation at first instance on appeal and to the High Court, that a shareholder class action was likely to result from these inquiries being taken. And in fact, by the time that the, share, um, that the High Court's judgment had come out, there was one already on foot. But there is an endorsement on one view from the High Court in public inquiries being a part of accountability for large companies. And by reason of that, shareholder class actions being a part of that landscape and that regulatory deterrent, I think that we're going to see more focus on public accountability within the corporate landscape and class actions are a really big part of that. That's fantastic. Thank you for for your insights in relation to this case. As I mentioned, we're going to do a part one and a part two for this podcast because Ariam has raised a few other issues outside of the examination process as well for class actions in Australia. So we'll come back to you in relation to the topic of group costs orders and we'll do that as a separate podcast. But it's it's been fantastic to hear from you today about the Walton case and to hear about your insights and, and what you see as the implications from this particular judgment. So I thank you for your time today, Felicity, and I look forward to the part two of the Arium discussion. Yep. Sounds great. Speak then. Thank you. Hi there, that's a wrap for the View from the Castle podcast for today. We hope you have picked up some useful tips and tricks and enjoyed listening to all things legal finance. If you want to continue the conversation, please reach out via email or via our website, castle.com.au. We would love to discuss what you are seeing in the legal finance industry and what we can do to enhance and improve it together. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.